Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's a rather quiet Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3 Triple R 102.7 on this absolutely beautiful Melbourne summer morning. And this is the very first Dr. Nick show for 2022. And with me to celebrate being back in the studio, I'm very fortunate to have the regular panellists, Panel Beater and Prudence Dear. Welcome to both of you. Morning, all. Good, Morning, good Dr. Have Nick. I've, I've, I've got a question for you. Prudence, you first. One word answer. Have you had COVID yet? Nope. <laughs> what about you, Panel Peter? I'm feeling left out. I've had people around me dropping like flies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you had it? Well, no, I have never tested positive, despite several dozen rats and several PCRs. But like many of us in the profession who have been in contact with a lot of people with COVID, I suspect we might have had very low-level subclinical yeah, right. infection, hmm. um, which is, I'd be very happy if that's the case. I just of don't an mix with boot. people at all. <laughs> <laughs> Prudence in self and self-imposed isolation still. What's, um, what's your clinic protocol for your your work yourself and your workers? Are you doing it... Uh, you know, super often. So we're not doing routine rats or anything like that on our staff. It's a, a self-governed thing. So any symptoms, people must isolate, stay away. They must do a rat. Um, but our staff are robust people. They've all been vaccinated over and over and over again. <laughs> and your, your supply okay? Yeah, no, vaccine's no issue at all. Yeah, um, so. and, and the rats supply. Oh, it, uh, rat supply, major problem. Yes, yeah. we have a secret stash. Shh, don't tell <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> they like gold dust, that's why. <laughs> so we're going to kick off 2022 with a show with a couple of amazing guests. Coming up soon, we'll have Joanna Buckley, a lovely woman who's just published her first novel. Hey, well done, Joanna. A novel called Lily Harford's Last Request, and we're even going to have a giveaway, which I'll tell you about later on. It's an absolutely beautiful book that explores the life of three women and the death of one of them. Uh, her publisher, Harper Collins, has kindly offered us five freebies. I'll tell you later how you can get hands on one of those. Uh, and I have a particular interest in this. I'll declare right now there's a board member of Dying with Dignity Australia and a provider of voluntary assisted dying care. I am fascinated by Joanna's work and her thoughts. We'll be talking to her fairly soon. And Prudence, uh, you've hey. got a very excellent guest coming up after later on the show. Yeah, well, it's February. February is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. Not Ovarian Cancer Awareness Week or Day, but Month. That's how important it is. Ovaries get an entire month to themselves. They get an entire month They're to two themselves. Two weeks each. And those who listen regularly to the show may have known, you know, we, we've mentioned it a bit in the previous years, but we're going to have a bit more of a focus today. So we've got a guest, uh, Sue Hegarty, who's, who heads up the uh, support services for for Ovarian Cancer Australia, which is um, an amazing organisation that's now in its 21st year supporting women. And do you have a particular women. interest in it? I suppose you? I do have to declare a particular interest. I was involved in setting up the organisation yeah. and I uh, chaired the board of directors for over 10 years. So and, and that was set up how long ago? 21 years ago. Oh, well done, Prudence. So, Great job. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, anything in the non-profit sort of charity area that lasts more than about three years <laughs> is doing extremely well. So 21 years. I think we're here to stay. How is that? I would know that people involved and Triple R would be involved in areas of non-profit, not making any money about anything, but doing the world of public goods. Such a Triple R vibe. (laughs) That's fantastic. We'll look forward to talking to Sue later on in the show. Uh, But before we get to that, here's our new segment. 
<laughs> so we've gone from the Labrador wolf to the little yappy tail. Guess the breed. Yeah, I was going to go Maltese. <laughs> so, yes, it's the dog park shout out here at Triple R. We love animals of every kind cats, dogs, aardvarks, or axolotls. Uh, I gather from Radio Marinara they love baby orcas. That's what they were talking about earlier. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's only one of the only bad things about coming into this studio is I can't listen to the whole of Marinara because I'm on my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> so I miss that. But I did hear them talking about baby orcas. But we here on Radiotherapy, we love our dogs and the dog park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today's turn is the turn of young Ned from Richmond. Uh, and Ned was in the park in Richmond with his fabulous little five-month-old black Labrador, magnificently named Snickers. Oh, how lovely. Isn't that that a great name? Gorgeous little dog, really well-behaved. Ned, absolutely lovely to meet you on Snickers. We hope you see you in the park many more times from here on in. And you're you're the recipient of today's Triple R Radiotherapy Dog Park shout-out. So... (laughs) <laughs> Moving from the dogs, we're going to get serious. We're going to talk health stuff. But first, we're going to have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Panel Beater, you've been thinking about something particularly vexing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've been um, listening with great interest to those vox pops that are often done by reporters going out to the protests, you know, the the anti-mandate, anti-vax protests, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets said there. One of the things that's been getting, seems to me getting louder and louder, maybe I've just missed it up until recently, but seems to me getting louder and louder is a comment that goes something like, like the interview, the reporter will say, hey, what's what's the issue for you? What's What's the story? Mm-hmm. What, what are your concerns? And the response will be something along the lines of, um, I'm sick and tired of being told what to do and mm-hmm. um, these people who think they're better than us. Okay. Right? And and up to the, that, that first part of the phrase, I'm sick and tired of being told what to do, we might be able to put that into that characterisation of the aspect of the debate which is about liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. We could do that. It's the second bit that I think makes it really interesting. It's it's the it's the feeling that they're being judged or that people who you know, they're probably projecting, let's face it, but but they're they're perceiving that somebody is judging them for not wanting yeah. to get a vax. Which May have some truth to it. And may have some truth to it, you know. And and I think this is getting louder and louder. And I find it really, really interesting. And it just so happened... (laughs) (laughs) Coincidentally. ...that I came across a piece of research that was just published this month, um, hence the news item, um, and it was looking at this very question of, of morality and in vaccine hesitancy. Okay. Right, and uh, you know, I love some journal article titles that they get very imaginative and clever. <laughs> this one uh, is titled "Jab My Arm, Not My Morality." Oh, catchy. Yeah. <laughs> Perceived moral approach as a barrier to COVID-19 vaccine uptake by a couple of researchers at UCLA. And what August journal was this published in? <laughs> the August journal, uh, <laughs> um, a sage journal, um, social science and medicine. One which you keep by your bedside. <laughs> never never <laughs> further than arm's distance, Dr Nick. So what did they have to say then? Right. So they, um, they put... 
they created a list of um, 18 variables of reasons people might choose not to get vaccinated, Mm -hmm. ranging from um, things like um, concern about the science, concern about the expertise, um, worried about their health, um, and so on. The list, 18 of them, there was was quite a lot. And among those 18 uh, predictors um, was um, the feeling of being judged. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these researchers uh, then... You know, did their interviews and and quite a robust study it was. I think it was over um, 500, 600. Okay, so a decent number of people. A decent number of people as far as this sort of research goes. And so was this Australian or overseas? UCLA. UCLA, okay. Yeah, there's a couple. So, you know, to the extent that it is operating in Australia, certainly when I was telling you about my experience listening to the news items, these were the like the Canberra. Um, protests at the moment and so on, um, uh, and, and previous Melbourne protests where people were asked, and you were hearing something along these lines. So they they asked all of these participants why they weren't getting vaccinated, and and um, they went through these eighteen variables. Now the moral judgment aspect didn't come out as the as the as the number one um, reason that people weren't getting um, vaxxed. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to remind myself which one it was. Um, it was perceived safety is the number one reason okay. why the non-vaxxed are yep. getting vaxxed. Um, but it, it came in at number five out of 18, which I think is really notable, especially when the difference between one and five wasn't very much. Mm-hmm. And I think as from a health perspective and a, a medicine perspective, um, I think we can see similar sorts of things happen with um, public health campaigns around smoking and alcohol, obesity, um, it even in the domains of uh, climate science and things, it's all about being told by these people who are, bet, you know, perceived as better than you, the elites, as in the language of the of the um, respondents. Um, so, what, so what does that tell us then about how we should change the messaging so that we don't cause that sort of shame, if you like? Well, of... I was going to raise that question back at you. Yeah, because these researchers, they, they um, embedded in the research paper, they looked at previous research done in this area and um, were drawing on research where people were, when they were doctor shopping, GP mm-hmm. shopping, they were less likely to go to a doctor who they thought would judge them. Okay. For whatever the issue might be. So if they were obese or if they were smokers or if they were, they would actually go GP shopping to find a GP who wasn't judging them. So it didn't have anything to do with science. So you could be a smoker and still know that smoking's not good for you. The issue was um, you're a smoker and you didn't want to be judged. And this seems to be being reflected in the vaccination thing, according to this research. What do you reckon, guys? Well, I think one of the things that I think over the last sort of, what, six to nine months, there's been a lot of social media. I mean, it comes up in my feeds of people showing pictures of themselves with their little, you know, plaster on their arm. And it's like with the the whole symbolism of I'm vaxxed, I'm double vaxxed. And it's sort of like there is, yeah, I started to get a sense of, oh, you know, people are a kind of, I mean, one thing is a health promotion thing. Look, I've done it. You can do it. But there's also, I think, yeah, the sign of the sense of some sort of superiority that comes yes. over, at least from the from the perception of those who see that information. Yeah. Right? And I think there could be something in that, that they, we're getting a division here in the communities yeah. Yeah. between the, those who have and those who haven't. That's those, right. You know. and, and, and real or imagined, this is Correct. the experience of these people. Yes. And um, and so they they see, oh, can I go to that cafe without a mask? They mm. see that as segregation. Or they even use language I like know, apartheid. Is, 
Right, right? exactly. Which is and concerning. rather yeah. than as a health measure, and I think yeah. we've got to acknowledge that that is a legitimate experience for a lot of people. I think it's a really important parallel we've drawn with that things like smoking and diabetes and overweight and so on, that if they're feeling judged by a health professional, that's not going to work. It reminds me, actually, there was a fascinating article in the paper today um, quoting a Mr Jadeja, who was a QAnon and anti-vaxxer and so on, and has come out of that rabbit hole, if you like. And uh, he was asked in the article, um, so how should people approach when they're dealing with someone in that situation? And he actually mirrored what you're saying, I think, panel beta, because what he said was, if people say to you, you're an idiot, why are you doing this? You're wrong. And that's it doesn't work. He said, address the behaviour. He said, whatever your beliefs, you still haven't done the dishes and you haven't picked the kids up from soccer. Yeah. So address the behaviour that goes with it. And what you're saying is, don't shame us for our beliefs. Yeah. Even noticing, you know, some of the um, language, uh, I know it's uh, on the social media platforms, you know, um, people will be, the protesters will be referred to as freedom fighters, but freedom will be spelt F-R-E-E. D-U-M-B. You know, that's not helpful. (laughs) That is is not helpful. Well, I think that's exactly what your message is saying, isn't it? And and it is counterintuitive because some of us feel a bit cross about this. We feel very frustrated about what's going on. Be aware of the medical profession, the arguments about whether people who are not vaccinated should be put second in line for the queue for ventilators and so on. Uh, What you're saying is we have to move away from that sort of narrative about dumb and shame and so on because it's not going to help. That's fascinating. Fascinating panel, Peter. Thank yeah. you very much. Always great to find research which backs up your personal opinion. I love it. <laughs> Confirmation <laughs> bias. Is that yeah, what you yeah. say? <laughs> it's quarter past ten here on Three Triple R. We're going to go a short break, and then we'll be back with Joanna Buckley in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're now going to be talking to a mum, a teacher, a careers counsellor, and now published author. Lily Harford's last request is the title of Joanna Buckley's first novel. It's a really beautiful and at times quite confronting read. Um, And a warning for listeners, this next segment we're going to be dealing with some fairly complex issues of end of life issues, um, questions about dementia and even assisted dying. So just a warning if that's difficult for you, um, maybe go elsewhere for the next 10 minutes, but I'd much prefer you stayed with us because you're really going to enjoy talking with Joanna. Joanna, have we got you on the phone? Uh, You have. How lovely to talk to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me onto your program. First time author published um, just at the beginning of this month, which is a very, very exciting thing. Take us through, when did you start writing this book and why? Um, Look, I started writing the book in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, So, look, I'm in my 50s, so I've really come to creative writing kind of later in life. But... um, I guess I'd always enjoyed writing in the various jobs I'd done, whether that was in educational roles or um, the small business roles, that sort of thing. And um, I guess it was about probably um, 2013, I thought I'll have a go at entering a short story competition, just a local library thing. And yes. I discovered my passion and, you know, the whole thing about if time's flying, you know you're enjoying it, right? So. <laughs> and did you win the short story competition? How did that competition no, go? <laughs> no, I didn't get anywhere. Didn't even hear back. But, <laughs> no, but it didn't put you off. Um, well done. 
thank you. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of on my bucket list to actually make that a long story, like a novel. And in 2016, I started to, to write and... Honestly, I never thought I'd get published. You know, it's that's uh, that was just a dream come true. Never thought it would happen, but I ended up pitching it at a writers' conference to Harper Collins and got offered a publishing contract. And well, here I am. So, for those um, jealous aspiring writers at home, all of whom have got a novel in their hearts and minds, but perhaps not yet on, on the computer, what was the start to finish from first? pen to paper or finger to keyboard and actually <clears throat> being published well, at the start of this month? I did attend a workshop once at the Byron Writers Festival and um, it was uh, Jock Sarong who's all about writing a book in a year. Um, I'd love to be able to say that, <laughs> but I, yeah, it, it really was probably three years in the making um, and then another couple of years before you sort of see it on a, on a, a bookshelf in a, in a bookstore. So... But, you know, I'm a part-time careers counsellor in the school, so I wasn't working on it full-time. Yeah, you've got a few other things to do, haven't you, what with a job and a, and a few kids <laughs> wandering around there at home as well? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I'll just tell the listeners, um, it's, it's called Lily Harford's Last Request. It's an absolutely oh. gorgeous book uh, with some fabulous narratives in it, particularly around three women. Um, and um, for the blokes who are listening, uh, it might sound like a very female-centric book, which it is, but it's a fabulous book for blokes as well. Um, but let's, let's move from talking about the novel to talking what the genesis was, because this is oh. a really, to me, very important story. What, what brought you to write about end-of-life issues? Yeah, um, look, very early on after I decided I wanted to write a book, I, the concept, concept of um, euthanasia... Look, it had been floating around in my family for decades, really. My grandfather, Harry, who was a beautiful, beautiful... You know, the definition of a gentleman, a gentleman. So he lost his short-term memory. Um, he didn't recognise his wife of 60 or more years. Oh, yes. So, look, really, it was very traumatic for my whole family. And his son and my dad, Noel, he vowed, look, if that ever happens to me, I'm going to take a pill. Mm -hmm. I never want to go the way of my father. Yes, which, which sounds a straightforward concept, but not quite as easy as it might seem. Just no, take well, of course. Yes. No, no. But that was and, what you your know, dad said. And, you know, I've had every time over the decades that Dad would say that. So, so yeah, Dad, uh, you know, he, he considered himself having a very, very lucky life. But uh, when he started to lose his memory in his late 80s, it was like history repeating itself. Mm. And he also ended up in a nursing home, he could see the writing on the wall, but the last thing he wanted was to go the way of his father. So he seriously was asking his five children to help him die. Luckily, in the end, he got pneumonia. He died from that pretty quickly. So we didn't end up having to confront confront that. But, you know, it, it, he died a much better death than my grandfather, and I suppose it was what he wanted. And so I guess my story, I wanted to highlight that issue because there's so many families out there going through... The same thing that we did. And a very important part of your dad's story, if I'm right about this, is that he contracted pneumonia, but he had given a clear instruction, I don't necessarily want antibiotic treatment to fix an illness like that. And, and the doctors realised this and went along with his wishes. Can you just talk me through that? Well, that's right. So we took him... He was taken to hospital from the nursing home. He was making it very clear, don't treat me, don't treat me. Um, and we also talked to the doctors and blessed them. Instead of giving him um, uh, antibiotics, they gave him morphine. 
and within 36 hours he passed away and his children were around his bed. We were able to tell him how much we loved him, to thank him for being such a wonderful father. And, you know, it was a good death. As far as deaths go, it was a good death. It was what he wanted. So... Um, it's interesting. What more can the, you ask for, the, really? He led. A, he, he was a very good man. He led a good life. Yes, and, and he deserves a good death. And you use that phrase, a good death. One of the narratives that's in the media at the moment that makes my blood boil is when we hear politicians saying every single death is a tragedy. Um, and th this is repeated over and over again. And mm. I think you would agree with me, knowing what's happened with your grandfather and your father. Of course, mm. we don't want people to die sooner than they should, but there are times when time is up and um, mm. a, a good death is what's required, and it isn't actually a tragedy. Would you call your dad's death a tragedy? Absolutely not. I mean, he was nearly 92, and he'd had a great life, and he went the way he wanted. He didn't suffer the way he absolutely dreaded. So one of the, um, and one of the things that um, I really wanted to highlight through this segment is what that's about, that planning. How do you get what uh, you want at the end of your life? Now, did your, did your dad actually have a written advanced care directive, as far as you know? I actually can't answer that, Nick. Okay. I, he probably didn't no, then. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. He, he, oh, look, I wouldn't be surprised. He was a very organised man. Mm -hmm. He was an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> He probably had every uh, I dotted and, and T crossed, so yep. I would think the answer was yes. So, mm. so part of the message I want to get out here is that we should all, um, whether we're 50, 30 or 80, um, be thinking about how do we want to be treated at the end of our lives if something like this happens to us. And mm. this thing called an advanced care directive, and Joanne, I suspect you would have known if your dad did have one, because normally they're things we get people to discuss with family members and get them to have a look at so that they know what's in there. Um, yeah. But if anyone listening to this is thinking, well, what should we do to prepare? What your dad did was tell people what we actually should do is get some formal paperwork done called an advanced care directive. And you can download templates from that from the Office of the Public Advocate website. You can get it from Dying with Dignity Victoria. And in fact, uh, this is one of the plugs I wanted to make was uh, you mentioned particularly this is uh, uh, talking about dementia. It's a very tricky one for what you write, and we have a particular um, uh, template on the Dying with Dignity website which will help people plan if dementia is a possible concern later in life. Prudence, you wanted to? Yeah, look, I just, well, I just kind of partly wanted to reinforce that about, you know, we do have some sort of choice and the ability to indicate what we want for uh, end-of-life care. And, and in, you know, in Joanne's father's case, it sounds like he was able to communicate that. But, yes, you, know, you can find yourself in a situation where you are not able any longer to express what your needs and desires are, and therefore it may be left to someone else to make that decision. So it is important to be able to record that, that information and, yeah, take those opportunities to do that. Um, so we do need to think about it well ahead of time because, um, you know, when, when it comes to the crunch, it may be, it may be too late or too difficult for you to actually express your wishes. And you mentioned, mm. you mentioned appropriately prudent, someone helped make that decision for you. So as well as the advanced care directive, you need a medical treatment decision maker. I'm sure yes. you've done your paperwork, haven't you, Joanne? Uh, of course. <laughs> no, yes, I have. have you? No, I have. <laughs> oh, you're, you're a very well-organised woman. Well done. Um, look, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Um, we're going to um, go ahead and give the information to listeners about how they can get hold of a copy of your book. Um, are you going on a, an author's tour around the world, all, all expenses paid? What's the story? What happens from here? <laughs> 
Uh, no, look, I'm just a humble debut author, Nick. I, uh, <laughs> uh, that would be nice, but uh, no, it's just pretty low-key. But it's in bookshops and it can be ordered online. And, um, yeah, hopefully it will help people to read it and um, engender discussions on that really difficult but important topic. I think it's all not just engender discussions, but even if people don't want to engender a discussion, it's just a great book to read. It's a fabulous novel. Uh, absolutely huge congratulations, Joanna. It's an amazing thing to not just write it, but to get it published. I'm absolutely in awe. Lovely to have had you on. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We have another guest on the line. Prudence, why don't you introduce yes, our next Yes, OK. Guest. As I said a little bit earlier, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Ovarian Cancer Australia is a very important organisation that actually, you know, is headquartered here in Melbourne. And our guest this morning is, is Sue Hegarty. And uh, Sue... Um, Sue has actually had a bit of a history working in the cancer field. Um, She qualified as a nurse and has had a number of roles in cancer support and and spent several years working with the Cancer Council Victoria. So she's very well qualified, I think, to to talk to the subject today, which is going to be about ovarian cancer. And her role uh, there is as uh, Chief of Support Programs. So let's see. Um, Hi, Sue. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, Prudence. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great honour. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So, look, it's a busy month for you, I'm sure. So we've got you um, on the radio on a Sunday, but I don't suppose you're working, uh, you know, any less than seven days a week at the moment. But can you tell us, okay, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, why is it so important that we know about ovarian cancer? Thank you. I mean, we do know that ovarian cancer is the deadless female cancer and with a five-year survival rate of 48%. So it's really important that all women and, and Australians know about the disease and what might be some of the signs and symptoms. And sadly, you know, we know we lose um, one woman to ovarian cancer every eight hours. That's right. I mean, there's some pretty tragic statistics here. And actually, I mean, you give us a a five-year survival, which is a kind of, again, another one of those statistics that says that for everyone who's diagnosed, only 48% of those will be alive in five years' time. Um, How does that compare, do you know, to other cancers? Like, where does that compare to, for example, to breast cancer? Yeah, so breast cancer five-year survival rate is 92%. and. You know, we really look to the incredible um, work that's been done in breast cancer and probably the biggest difference is in, you know, breast cancer, there is breast um, breast screening available to women, whereas in ovarian cancer there isn't an effective screening test so that we know, unfortunately, most women present with very advanced disease. So about 60% of women will present with advanced disease and... Mm-hmm. You know, that's so tough, women, you know, in the prime of their life. You know, and, and that's right. And so advanced disease is often is, is very much more difficult. That's what we mean when we say advanced disease. It's usually spread from the original yeah. site. And and the treatment is, is much more difficult and actually takes, uh, well, it's often very less successful. So no screening tests. So all these women that are going out having their regular, well, used to have pap smears. Now we have uh, something else, yeah. but every five years. Yeah. Cervical screening Cervical test. Cervical screening <laughs> test. Thank you, Dr. Thank Nick. Dr. Nick. And, and, and Sue, I'm sorry to interrupt, 
prudence, but I really want to dwell on that one because this is something in general practice we get asked all the time about screening for ovarian cancer. So women will often come and ask us for some form of screening or testing for ovarian cancer. So what's the, what's the right approach when a woman, say, in her 40s or 50s comes to a doctor and says, I'm worried about the risk of ovarian cancer? What should the medical practitioners be doing? Yes, and, and I think that's a, a really important question, Dr Nick, because we do know that there are, you know, factors that put women at greater risk of ovarian cancer and a family history is um, one of those risk factors. So I think women sort of knowing their family history of cancer and, and particularly of ovarian and breast um, and colon cancer where... There are links. So about 15% of cases of ovarian cancer will have a hereditary link. Um, but then, you know, for screening of the general population, you know, there isn't a screen that's been shown to be effective. So that's where we really encourage women to be aware of the, the signs and symptoms and if they're concerned, to, to go to their doctor. So I think the challenge with this disease, you know, is that the signs and symptoms are, are quite common. And I think that makes it um, difficult to detect early. So, you know, abdominal bloating, increased abdominal size, abdominal pelvic pain, loss of appetite, feeling quickly, feeling full quickly, urinary changes, bowel changes, constipation, you know, weight loss or weight gain and fatigue. But I guess the key thing for women is, you know, if these symptoms persist or they're unusual, to go to a doctor and, um, you know, ask for them to be investigated. And I've spoken to so many women that, you know, even with quite advanced disease, you know, one lady, all she had was um, bleeding after intercourse and none of those other symptoms. And another woman who was stage four who had, you know, very minimal symptoms. So I think the key is if things are, are different for the woman um, and they persist, you know, to go to the doctor and um, and to have those investigations. So you've, you've listed some very, very important symptoms there, Sue, and, of course, any woman listening to this would say, well, I've had at least some of those symptoms pretty yes. much every week for the last five years because they are so um, diverse and in many ways very non-specific, aren't they? I mean, you mentioned things yes. like bloating, weight gain, weight loss, uh, urinary symptoms. You mentioned that last one, which was bleeding after intercourse whole yeah. series of fairly non-specific symptoms, which makes it incredibly hard, doesn't it? I want to just take you back a moment. You mentioned that there's um, around about 15% um, of people who get ovarian cancer, there's a family risk. And you yeah. mentioned not just ovarian, but bowel and breast cancer in the family. Yeah. Now, that's going to alarm quite a lot of people because, of course, if you take all three of those, um, it's very, very common that someone in the family has had them. How important is it for a woman if, say, her uncle has had bowel cancer? Because this is where I find people get very confused. They're not sure what a family history actually means. Yes, and look, I think that's a really good question, um, Dr Nick, and we really um, suggest women make contact with a familial um, cancer centre or get their doctor to refer them There's um, histories of cancer in their family because they do a, a really thorough assessment of the family's history of cancer and then look at, you know, what the, the likelihood of um, that being a genetic cause. And then if there is, you know, it looks like from the family history, there's a high risk they would recommend genetic testing. So it really is 
you know, um, skill to look at all family history. So I just encourage, you know, women or, or people, callers, if they've got um, a history of cancer in their family, talk to their GP and then to look at um, getting a referral to a familiar cancer clinic where they'll actually go through, you know, aunts, uncles and, um, you know, we do know that the, the most common um, gene that causes ovarian cancer is the BRCA gene, and that mm-hmm. can be inherited um, from from mum and dad. And so it, it's really important for, for both men and women to be aware of their, their family history of, um, of cancer and, and speak to their GP and then a familial cancer clinic if it's justified I think um, the, so that's a that's a great tip for women out there if you've if you do have a significant family history tell your gp you want a referral to a familiar cancer clinic because that's not something which necessarily a gp is going to do i'm, I'm going to ask you one more medical question and prudence get on with what she wants yeah, but the other but but again i think this is a really hard thing for women suppose you're going to a doctor with those relatively non-specific symptoms and the doctor kind of brushes it off and said oh well, no, i don't think we have to do much about that are there are there particular tests or investigations which a woman should be saying to a doctor i want you to organize these Yes, so typically if a woman presents with those symptoms, they'll do a CA125 blood test that is a protein marker that can be elevated in ovarian cancer, but it can be elevated for other reasons. So that's why it's um, non-specific as a screening test. And they then really should have a transvaginal ultrasound at the same time. And then they look at the results of those two and, you know, what, um, might be the likelihood of ovarian cancer and then go on to potentially do other scans. Um, you know, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, ovarian cancer is a less common cancer and women, um, you know, it, it's like you say, Dr Nick, hard for GPs because it might not be the most likely reason for, for some of those symptoms, but it's persistent symptoms that really need to be investigated. Uh, thanks, Sarah, and I, I will probably repeat those symptoms uh, uh, in a little bit later. But um, so what can um, an organisation, what do you do, like with Ovarian Cancer Australia, and what does Ovarian Cancer Australia offer to, to women who have ovarian cancer? Yeah, so, um, you know, what we've spoken about, you know, that the course five-year survival obviously, you know, leaves women very stressed and um, when they're diagnosed. And we know that about 40% of women um, with ovarian cancer have anxiety and depression. So, you know, Ovarian Cancer Australia, the two main aims are um, to save lives and to support women. And our fa- one of our founders, Sheila Lee, um, really established this organisation because she saw the lack of support for women with ovarian cancer. And after the first rally that... Um, that she held, you know, over over 20 years ago. She said, let's go save some lives, and we've continued to do that um, over the 20-year the history of the organisation. So we have um, a cancer um, a nurse helpline that women can call. So if your callers are listening and thinking, what do I do? What did Sue mention? What were those tests? You know, 
Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, we've got um, ovarian cancer nurses um, on the line by calling our helpline. We then have a tier support program and we had our parliamentary breakfast on Tuesday and um, had some recurrent funding um, announced for that program. So that's where um, women are matched up with their own ovarian cancer nurse consultant who they've got their mobile number and they can call them with concerns and get support along what we know can be quite a brutal treatment and for women who are luckily you know diagnosed very early which we know it's, it's less common you know they um, have up to 90% five-year survival rates whereas we know for women with more advanced disease you know the journey can often be you know having a recurrence quite quickly and we know that 70% of women who are diagnosed with advanced disease will reoccur within the first three years so they live with very high levels um, of distress around the fear of the cancer coming back. And um, we recently did some work with um, the male carers and 91% of them had clinical levels of fear of recurrence of their partner's um, cancer reoccurring. So we know it's a very stressful disease for family members as well. That's right. I mean, well, there's all those kind of tests, even when, when the disease appears to be, you know, non-existent as if it's responded to treatment. There's still regular tests, blood tests and so on. So there's, there's that constant reminder, a nagging reminder, I suppose, that it might come back. I mean, you mentioned, okay, you mentioned partners, male partners of, of women yeah. with ovarian cancer. I mean, yeah, they often ha will have a, a very significant carer role. There's a lot of uncertainty when caring for someone with a, a, a severe and advanced cancer. So what, what have you been able to do for, for partners, for male partners of people with ovarian cancer? Yes, yeah, so we've, um, in the last 12 months through funding from the Dry July, so thanks to all the callers that did Dry July, it's helping us fund our important program. We've got a, a monthly support group run by Angela, one of our wonderful social workers with Peter, um, a male cancer nurse, and they meet monthly. Um, we've got a webinar and we're also in collaboration with men developing a specific resource to address those issues. We know that over 60% of men, you know, changes to the sexual relationship. Women who have their ovaries um, removed go into, you know, immediate menopause. And this is women, you know, in their 20s who still can get ovarian cancer. I mean, you know, it's uncommon, but even children with ovaries can get ovarian cancer. So for younger women to, you know, suddenly go into immediate menopause, um, often and if they're diagnosed with advanced cancer, they'll have a hysterectomy. These are huge issues for, for women to, to grapple with. So we have our specific male carers program, but also a specific program for younger women. And Hayley, one of our counsellors, and Fee, one of the nurses, runs that with women across Australia who are diagnosed with the disease. Because I think there's, you know, added stresses. We know that women who are younger have higher psychosocial distress and that's because you know often there's fertility and immediate menopause and caring for young children and all the financial ramifications so you know we've got a whole suite of services and people can see what they are on our website um, www.ovariancancer.net.au ovariancancer.net .au. And also, I think it's yeah. worth mentioning, OK, we'll, we'll mention the phone number a couple of times, but if this is your first yeah. chance to take it down, so it's 1300 660 And that'll get you through to, you know, Monday to Friday, uh, 9 to 5. 
and there'll be somebody on the end of that line to provide all sorts of advice. Is that right, Sue? I mean, whether you want, uh, whether you're concerned if you have ovarian cancer, whether you've been diagnosed, if you're a family member, anybody can phone that. Absolutely, and you know, uh, beautiful two nurses on the helpline, um, Bridgie and um, Georgie, and they, you know, they love being able to support women and help navigate them. You know what Dr. Nick was raising before, you know about family cancer and what to do and, and just women often you know on the phone you're just reassuring women no go get another opinion you know there was an Australian survey that showed it took up to um, nine months for the average woman to get a diagnosis because you know, some of the bowel symptoms might have some bowel um, investigations and that um, journey through so that's where you know as Dr Nick raised before you know what are the tests you know the CA125 blood test and the transvaginal ultrasound, really for those persistent symptoms should be considered um, early in the investigations. And that's what would really encourage women to, to talk to their GP. And if there's concerns about ovarian cancer, to, to have those two tests done as part of looking into what might be the causes of, of their symptoms. Okay, so it's important that uh, we equip women with that sort of knowledge and the, the use of those terms. So, you know, CA125 and a transvaginal ultrasound um, yeah. is, the, is the thing to ask for. And I mean, yeah, look, my understanding with ovarian cancer is, for example, we don't really know how it kind of develops. Some, some cancers that we have have kind of precancerous stages, which is what you look for when you're trying to screen. But we don't, I think the evidence to date so far is we don't even know how long it takes to go from like, you know, go to O, as it were. Um, so when you mentioned that it can take nine months uh, to get a diagnosis, I think we probably, through, you know, some of the people that have been in contact with Ovarian Cancer Australia in the past, have been have been pursuing their diagnosis for sometimes in cases of years. And, um, you know, when they finally get a diagnosis, the cancer's often very advanced. So sadly, it looks like, you know, Women are having to advocate for themselves at times to get the, the medical help they need. And I suppose this is, again, where Ovarian Cancer Australia comes in by, by promoting information. Do you do much to provide information to the medical profession? Um, or how do, how do we do that? Yep. Absolutely. That's a great question, Prudence. So we do every two years run an ovarian cancer symposium for health professionals. That's um, the dedicated um, event in Australia just for clinicians around ovarian cancer. And we, one of the areas that we work with is in our leading change agenda. So our CEO, Jane Hill, successfully advocated for $20 million of research funding through the Medical Research Future Fund. And we work really closely with government to, to look at how we can increase um, funding to this disease. And we've got, you know, an incredible um, motivated um, community of health professionals in this country, you know, looking after women. Um, we've got Professor David Botol, who works as, as the Peter Mackin, is the chair of our advisory committee, and Professor Anna DeFazio, who's also on our advisory committee. You know, these are some of the world leaders in this um, area, and David Botel's work in genetics really identified that, um, you know, for women with high-grade serous ovarian cancer, 50% um, um, will have the BRCA gene but won't have significant family history. So we now, all those women have um, BRCA testing if they've got that type of ovarian cancer. So, you know, Australia is 
really up there leading um, the way in this area, working, you know, with clinicians across across the world, really united to make um, a difference. And although I think we've talked a lot about the poor survival and, and how difficult the disease is, you know, we know there are some new medications that are making a difference, um, a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. So I think the future is looking a lot brighter for, for women. But, you know, the reality is that the five-year survival rate is still poor. So we, we need to still do more. And, and through our Varian Cancer Awareness Month, we really call on the community to get behind us. We are a, a small not-for-profit and we need everyone doing their bit to help us, really. And, that, and this is the month, I mean, when, when we hopefully get as much publicity as possible. So, I mean, you can also, I think, um, there's, there's lots of nice little YouTube videos. So, you know, look up Ovarian Cancer Australia on YouTube and, uh, and see some of the stories that, uh, that, that people who've been in contact with the organisation have, have to tell about their experiences. How do they give money? How do we give money yes. to Ovarian Cancer Australia? Yeah, so there's multiple ways people can out. do that. Um, so our giving day is on the 23rd of February and we've got generous donors that will um, match any donation given to us on that day. So you can hop on our website and um, donate to our Carry the Courage um, campaign that's um, for giving day on the 23rd of February. You can host a teal tea and that's up on our website. And also to share um, any of our content on the social media sites and get the message out to family and friends. You know, we we have a really um, generous community that support ovarian cancer Australia, but I think it is every um, Australian's concern. It is the deadliest female cancer. You know, the five-year survival rates are nowhere near where they need to be. And we know, as in breast cancer, that, you know, when we have really good investment... Um, and, and early detection, you know, we can get women's survival rates now up to 92%, which, you know, is just wonderful. And we look to, you know, what's happening in breast cancer as the, as the sort of guiding light of where we can um, go as a disease. So, that, so that's been incredibly helpful. Um, as a medical practitioner, I've, I've learned a lot. Um, if I could summarise and make sure I've got this right, um, if, if a woman's worried about uh, the possibility of ovarian cancer, Cancer, but has a, maybe a family history but no symptoms, they should be asking their GP for a referral to a, a familial cancer centre. If they have those significant symptoms which feel different, they might be vague but they're important, um, then they need to be pushing to get tests, the blood test and the ultrasound, um, and then they need to get onto the website and donate to ovarycancer.net.au. Yep. Um, Prudence, do you want yeah, to say look, farewell to We're going to do a quick wrap-up, but anyway, important things, just in case you want the phone number, it's 1300 660 334. 1300 660 334. Or go to ovariancancer.net.au. Um, if you've got any concerns at all, Monday to Friday, 9 till 5. Okay, Sue, well done to Ovarian Cancer Australia. We wish you all the best for the rest of the Awareness Month. And thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, Prudence, Dr. Nick. Such a lovely need to be on your fabulous show. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Sue. That was Sue Higgerty, Chief Support Programs of Ovarian Cancer Australia. And that's radiotherapy for today. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.